0: I wonder if you have ever stood on the verge of something great that is about to happen. Some sort of momentous event that you're supposed to participate in, and there's a moment of waiting right before it begins. A month or so ago, I'm not sure how long it it was, when Twelfth Night was playing over at IC, um, and uh, my son Ari and I went to go see it along with a couple of others of you, and it was outstanding. but we went in, we didn't, I'd never been there before, I hadn't seen it, it was my first show at Ithaca College, and we went in the wrong door. And like, rather than look ahead and find the right door, I just thought, we will get in the building, we go into a door, we'll get there eventually. But so we're like in the basement, walking around, Ari and I, and I'm just, you know, and eventually we see somebody dressed well, like they're gonna be in the show. And so I think, well surely this person knows where we're going, and in fact they did, and we got there on time. And Laurie had got tickets for us, so we were good. Um, but it reminded me of when I was in high school, the one time that I was in a musical my senior year. I went through all of high school without the courage to actually do anything on the stage, but then there was this moment where I got to be in this musical, and I had a speaking part, which I was excited about, but also amazingly nervous, and it wasn't anything like what you guys did, so it's nothing, really. But um, I remember the night of the show, and I remember being with the other cast in this, it was a classroom in our school, and I remember all of the tension and the excitement and the energy that was there. And this is the kind of moment in which the director comes in, right before you go on stage and has something to say. And this is not the moment for the director to say, look, I have your lines for you here. Let me go through them again with you. This is the moment in which a good director comes and has something to say that frames and inspires what's about to happen. Something that's going to comprehend and set everybody on the right page, as it were, for what's gonna happen. In our passage in John 14, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples on his last night before he is arrested and crucified. It is the end of his ministry and it is the beginning of the turning point for what will become their ministry. They do not know what is going to happen. They do not understand. And so, for five chapters, five chapters in the Gospel of John, we get a long discourse of Jesus explaining himself. I'm reminded as I read it, we said a couple of weeks ago that unlike the Gospel of Luke, Luke, or unlike Luke the Evangelist who writes the Acts of the Apostles, John doesn't have any continuation of the life of the church, and so in some ways things are condensed and compacted into his gospel. In the book of Acts, the disciples after Jesus' death and resurrection are gathered in an upper room in Acts 2 on the Feast of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out. It might be the same room, and it's interesting that John presents this room, this conversation with Jesus because Luke tells us in Acts that for 50 days after his resurrection Jesus was present with his disciples teaching them. It's like we get that already in the Gospel of John in these chapters. So we get to listen in on this moment when the director has something to say to his cast. There is so much that they will have to do. They're like Israel in our Deuteronomy reading, on the verge of entering the promised land. They need counsel and courage. They need guidance. But here's what Jesus says at this moment in our reading today. Essentially what he has to say is this. What happens out there is not the end. In the face of all that they will experience and endure, Jesus orients them to the true ending and purpose and significance of their lives, their telos, towards which they're headed. And that end, that telos, is the experience of utter peace and blessedness in the presence of the triune God, unending, uninterrupted, undistracted, undiluted joy, unmediated, except by the one who takes them up into himself that they might share his life. Listen to what he says in verse 3. I go to prepare a place for you. And I will take you to myself that where I am there you may be also. He doesn't say I have profound teaching that I want you to understand about me. Although that is true. He doesn't say I have good works for you to do. Although that's part of it. He says I want to be with you. And I want you to be with me. Elsewhere, he is going to have things to to say about what they are supposed to do. They are to heal the sick, they are to help the weak, they are to proclaim Jesus and to propagate his teaching. But here, he says something like this. This is a couple chapters later, but in the same scene. Father, he's praying, I desire that these also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Strangely, in this moment, right before everything is about to fall apart and be made new again, Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father, the glory that he has with the Father, and how he wants to invite his friends into that experience. He wants to hold this before them. It's not a kind of esoteric reflection on God. Jesus himself is the revelation of the Father. St. Irenaeus in the second century called him the visible nature of the Father. But while the disciples have seen Jesus already, they have not seen all that there is to see. Philip asks him, show us the Father, Lord, and it's enough for us. And although Philip doesn't quite understand, he gets at least this part right. It is enough to see and be in the presence of the Father. Jesus corrects him. Have I been with you all this time, and yet you do not know me? Do you not know that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? There is knowledge, and there is not yet enough knowledge. There is experience, but then there is yet still more. There's actually a promise, I think, in verse 7... In our translation, which Ryan read for us, it says this, if you had known me, you would, have known, you would have known my Father also. And if you listen to that, there's a suggestion that they have not known Jesus, isn't there? And therefore that they have not known the Father. That reading reflects, the, that translation reflects the reading of the majority of our Greek manuscripts of John, but I think it's probably not the best reading And some more recent translations have this reading. If you have known me, you will know the Father. Do you hear that there's a promise? If you have seen me, if you have begun to experience my presence, there is more for you. Seeing and knowing Jesus and the Father and their love for one another, this is everything. And it's necessary for what is ahead because great suffering is coming. Many of these disciples will lose their families. Many will lose their lives. John's own, the, the, John the Evangelist's own community has probably experienced substantial trauma. John is the only gospel where we get explicitly the idea that those followers of Jesus who confess them as the Christ might be removed from the synagogue might be removed from their community. It is a painful rupture. We hear about it like in John 22. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, all who want to live a godly life in Christ will endure persecution. What is coming is going to be hard. And so Jesus gives this vision of what it is like to be with him, with the Father, good thing for us to remember that Jesus himself lived a life that ended in arrest and execution. His hope was not that somehow on the ground he could make Israel great again. It was not that he could rectify every problem. Listen where his own eyes are set in verse 28. It's, not in, our, it's in our chapter but not in our passage. If you loved me, he says to his disciples, you would have rejoiced that I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus is looking ahead to his own experience, the fullness of reunion with the Father. His loving devotion to the Father and his obedience to the Father's design has opened the way of salvation, the way for you and I to come to God. His life tells the story of God's love, It affects the redemption that God desires and it therefore embodies this pilgrimage that you and I are called to make. What is the story that your life tells? Does it connect with Jesus' story? I do think our lives, if we think about them and reflect on them, are saying something to ourselves, to the world. And I hope it is not this on the eve, as it were, of graduation. I hope it is not this, that if you study and work really hard, you can be very successful. The director is not unconcerned about how the play is played. Jesus directs in this moment of caring for his disciples, he directs them to the vision of God, but he is concerned for how they're going to walk and live. He says this, this remarkable statement in verse 12, the one who believes in me will do the works that I do and in fact will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. How in the world could Jesus say that your works are going to be greater than his own? My works are mercy. It begs us to ask about what the works of Jesus mean. In Luke 13, there is a woman who we're told has been crippled and bent over for 18 years. And she's in the synagogue where Jesus is. And Jesus calls her up and he speaks to her and she is made well, able to stand up. 18 years, it's a long time. What does a healing like this mean for her? in addition to being able to stand up straight. It means something about being restored to her community. It means something about what she's able to do. It means something about how people see her differently, about her place, her belonging. It's not a noble man, it's a woman who is a cripple. And she's made well. Jesus' works are telling a story about God's care for this world, these are the kinds of works we are called to do in symbolic enactment of God's redemption. As the Father has sent me, he says a couple chapters later, so I send you. There is, he envisions a correspondence between our works and his works, which is why he says at the immediately next verse to, that he promises to do whatever the disciples ask in his own name. Some of us, if we pray, are in the habit. I hope you pray, are in the habit of praying in Jesus' name. Not everybody does here. I'm not stupid. I know that. Um, But we sometimes forget what this means. To do anything in Jesus' name means to do it resonating with his person, his vision, his intention. This must mean that Jesus' works that our works are in one, some ways greater than the Lord's, not because they are of a different or nobler kind, because they're supposed to be of the same or analogous kind, but because there's a lot more of us, and because he is at work in us and through us to multiply this witness to the world. Ari and I, my son Ari and I, we're talking about this the other day, this pastor, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. And we kind of had this conversation. Does this mean that I could get like my own personal helicopter? Um... And we decided, Ari helped me realize, that this is, that's probably not what it means. That kind of asking is not in Jesus's name. It doesn't resonate with who he is. Jesus is conditioning us to live lives that correspond to him. But in order to do that, we need to have a mind and heart that are captured by this first vision that we will be with the Lord forever, in his presence. And that mystically and truly, even now, our life with him involves union, knowing his presence. I'm a parent. A number of you are parents. Some of you are parents of very young children, although it's awfully quiet in here today. Um, When you have a young child who's throwing a tantrum, it is hard. By God's grace, sometimes there is a moment when there can be peace, and where a parent has the vision and the ability to slow down and say, I know that you do not understand. I know that you are underslept, and that you are, in some cases, you've had too much sugar. Maybe it's like right after Easter or something. Easter candy in our house, holy moly. Um, There are moments where patience and perspective occur, and you realize that this is how God sees us and treats us. There's great fellowship in even mundane, small tasks. Uh, At the close of our worship services, uh, we have a dismissal that usually ends with something like this, let us go forth to love and to serve the Lord. Both of these words, I think, capture what I'm trying to get across. We are to love and to serve the Lord. that elemental response to the God who is life and goodness for us. This is the first and great commandment. It comes before everything else. We are to love and delight in the Lord. This is where we are headed, brothers and sisters. And we are to serve. We are to embody his sort of life with one another as we go forward. This is our calling, to see in Jesus the glory of the Father, to behold that glory and love knowing that we will never be cast out from it and to walk into the world with a readiness to make his glory known. Amen.